Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's good to see you today. Uh, as you can see, you're stuck with me two weeks in a row. And uh, I hope that the lesson this morning will be a blessing to you as we shift gears and we begin to talk about the family of God. Uh, we're really not shifting gears too much because we've been leading up to this point for some time. If you will recall, we went through a series on the fruit of the Spirit, and during that, a lot of those things that are mentioned there, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, etc., they're all relative to the relationship that we all have with one another and how we interact with one another and the unity that comes from that. And, and Brother Nathan, I didn't ask him to lead that song, but that was a perfect song to get our minds focused on the idea of the family of God as it talks about the sharing that we have in Jesus Christ, that we share each other's uh, aims, goals, our, our tears, our joy, all those things that a family would typically all experience together as a unit, if you will. And so as we think about the family of God, I want to set that up by just revisiting some things that we've talked about up to this point. David writing in Psalms 133 and verse 1 says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron running down on the edge of his garments. It's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing life forevermore. Now these analogies may sound strange to us, but he says, you know, unity among brethren is such a great and tremendous blessing. He said it's like the oil that ran down Aaron's beard. Well, that's weird, isn't it? Isn't that a little strange? What's he talking about there? Well, Aaron was the high priest, and one of the things God told or commanded the high priest to have done to them is that there was oil that was to be poured upon their head, and that oil consecrated them. It made them special in the eyes of God. You know what Christ means? The anointed one. Uh, the high priest was a picture of our high priest, Jesus, and it was a special thing that happened. It was special in the eyes of God when that oil was running down the beard of Aaron onto his garment. He says it's like the dew of Hermon. That's Mount Hermon or Mount Zion, which is different from Mount Zion that we typically think of. But here's the point. This particular Mount, Mount Hermon, has just an inordinate amount of dew. And in the morning, it, it, you, there's so much dew on everything, it looks like it rained the night before. You know what that area is? It's plush and green, and everything just continues to grow. It's not like West Texas, you know, everything burns up or dies in the winter. It's a flourishing environment where everything grows and there's life. So what's the point of all this? When brethren are dwelling together in unity, God looks at that and he says, That is special. That is special. That is good. He said, that is the place where life is everlasting. We talked last week about Christ, our life. Did you know that within the body of Jesus Christ in the family of God is life everlasting? And he says, it is a blessing. How good and how pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. But you know what's difficult? Is sometimes brethren dwell together and even though they're together physically, they're not united. Sometimes there's the illusion of unity. The illusion of unity. You say, well, what is the illusion of unity? Well, let me ask you this. What is it that binds us together? What is it that makes us united? 
1 Corinthians 1 and 10, here, as Paul writes to the church at Corinth, he says, Now I plead with you, brethren. That's very strong language. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same things, that there be no divisions among you. Now listen, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Wouldn't that be wonderful? If you go to any church in America and they all spoke the same thing, and they were perfectly joined together in the same mind and same judgment, that'd be amazing, wouldn't it? Now, why didn't that happen? Well, I'll tell you why. Because men have opened their mouth and they've shut their Bible. And so we start allowing men to dictate what we're going to do and how we're going to worship and and all those things that we would call doctrine from the New Testament. And when we get to that point, how can we possibly have unity? So this is key, isn't it? That we allow God to guide and to dictate what we do and what we believe and how we interact with each other. That is a part of what binds us together as we all follow Jesus Christ and his words. But is that it? Is that it? Is that all that unites us what we believe you know if that's really true if the only reason that we're united is because we all believe the same thing we're not going to dwell together in unity you know why because you can get people in the room together that all believe the same thing and leave them in that room for about an hour they'll find something they disagree on and then if they don't look at everything that binds us together in Christ Jesus like humility and tender mercies and patience and all those things pretty soon unity will become disunity I remember Pat Manning years ago saying there's a difference between union and unity. He said union is tying two cats together and throwing them over a clothesline. He said, but that's not unity. They will tear each other up. And that's the truth. We can have union and not have unity. But unity is special in the eyes of God. And as we look at this idea that Paul gives to the church at Corinth, who were divided, by the way, even though they were physically together, they were very divided. Go read the letter. And notice this phrase, perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. Now we see the same language in Philippians chapter 2. And this is all about unity. And notice what he says here. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ or comfort, if there's any comfort of love, if there's any, here's that word that we talked about last week, fellowship of the Spirit, if any mercy and affection, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same mind, being of one accord, of one mind. So again, fellowship, that is a sharing where we would say partnership. Partnership. What is this? What is this idea of unity? Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Now listen, let each esteem other better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. This is a key to being united is that I'm not self-centered. Religion, true religion in Jesus Christ is not one of self-centeredness. It's Christ-centered and it's family-centered. You're not your own. And, And we hear all this language about a personal relationship with Jesus. And we have a personal relationship with God, a personal relationship with Jesus, so don't misunderstand me. But here's the reality of what God's Word teaches us in the New Testament. You can't just have a relationship with Jesus, just you and him. God puts you in a body, in a family, where we now begin to look out for one another. It's not about all about me. It's me all about you. And so from now on, I'm not worried about me exalting me. I'm worried about you 
staying close to God. That's Christianity. Unity will never be accomplished if we're self-centered and we're always worried about what I want, what I need. We have to be about one another. Now, before you get hung up on these words, I want to explain what I mean by this. This is about a mindset, okay? I'm not saying there are people who go to church and that's who they are. I'm saying that's sometimes our perspective. And there's two mindsets, people who go to church and people who identify as the church. And that's very different. And, and there's a language that you'll hear people use when they just identify themselves as I go to church. And here's the type of language they'll use. When they talk about the church, they'll use the word they, what they do. And it, it's the church they go to, but it's always them and what they do or what they don't do. Or, but when, when people really understand that they have a belonging a, a real belonging to the family of God, to the body of Christ, they use this language instead, we. It's about what we do. And this will drastically impact your life depending on whether you identify yourself as someone who goes to church or someone who is the church. You know why? Because God tells us how to dwell in unity, but then he founds that, that is all founded on the relationship and how we view our relationship with each other. Romans chapter 12 and verse 4 says this, For as many members, for as we have rather many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Now listen to this. Listen to this language he uses. We're many. We're all individuals. We're all separate parts of one body. And what does he say? We're all connected. We're not just members of Christ. We're members of one another. We are connected to each other. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministry. And that word ministry doesn't mean like a minister. The way we use the word, it just means a servant. In serving, let us use it in our serving. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation. We would probably use the word uh, encourage instead of the word exhort in our modern day language. He who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Now here's what happens. A lot of times, even though we don't believe in clergy and laity, and that was all made up by men, right? Is that right? Clergy and laity, it's all made up by men, right? But sometimes in application, we talk that way. And so we look at the elders and we say, well, they're the church. Or we look at a preacher, an evangelist, we say, well, they're the church. You're the church. No matter what your function is, you're the church. You're the body. If all you do is you give an encouraging word to your brothers and sisters on a daily basis, that's an important thing to do. And here's what he says. That's a gift that you have and you use that gift to the glory of God. And you're still a member and you're still connected and you're a part of the body. There's not these tears of more the church and not the church. We're all the church. We're all family. And we can't look at it through this carnal lens of, well, the people with the best gifts, they're the real true church. That's not true. You are the body. And we're all members individually, but every part of that body is connected and none of these things are more important than the other. You know what you'd have if you had a church with great preaching, but they didn't love each other, and they didn't show mercy, and they didn't give? You'd have a dying church. I don't care how good the teaching is. 
In fact, you take any one of those things away, you're going to have a problem somewhere within the body. Every one of those things is vital and important. But see, Paul used a different language in Ephesians 3. He says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. You know, there's some people that got a big family. Big family. There's a lot of dyers here today. Some of you are former dyers, but still dyers in heart, right? Ten kids. That seems like a big family to me. But you know what? That's not near as big as the family that is in heaven and in earth that all belong to God through Jesus Christ. That is a large family. And you're part of that family. You know, when we think about family, what is it that makes us family? We talk about immediate family. I guess you could say this is the oldest family I've known. We were little. Bo was never that little. He was always 10 years older than me. So I was always the one that got to experiment. <laughs> but we're family. And I guess we'll always be family, right? We're family. I'll tell you, this is my family. And they have no blood relation to me, but I'll tell you, that's my family. And I'll take a bullet for them. We understand family, don't we? These are my kids. You say, who, who is that big guy? That's my son. If you don't know him, I'll, I'll introduce you someday. I'll tell you, when it comes to our kids, we do a lot of things for our kids, wouldn't we? we? We might do things that may be morally questionable for our kids if someone tries to attack them. That's the kind of love that we have for our family, isn't it? And I'll tell you, some things about family you can't escape. I can't deny that that's my father. And anybody that looks at us would go, that was definitely your dad. I look more and more like him all the time. And why is that? Because I came from him. And we're connected by blood and DNA and every other thing you want to talk about physically. We're connected in that way. We're family. And I think about the history of families. Family's important, isn't it? It is so important. And it brings about loyalty. It brings about this natural love that we share even amongst the difficulties we love one another but you know what some of the things that we're told about family we just soak it right in blood is thicker than water is that biblical is it what did jesus think about family i think that's a question we need to ask how did jesus view family you know, there was a situation in Matthew 12 where it says, while he was still talking with the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside. Now, these are the physical brothers of Jesus seeking to speak with him. Then one, of, one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, here are my mother and my brothers and whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother so let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater here what jesus is not saying is that's not my mother that's not what he's saying in fact one of the last acts that we see jesus do before he dies on the cross is tell john his disciple take care of my mother jesus loved his mother okay so don't miss the point but Jesus is obviously making a point. And what's his point? This is my family. This is my family. 
And there's nothing greater than that. There's a physical bond that we share with our blood-related family. But notice what Jesus does. He emphasizes the family that is in God. In fact, Jesus uses other language in Luke 14 and 25, Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. People read that and they go, that makes no sense. Jesus said to love your enemy and to hate your father. Is that what Jesus is really saying? You need to hate your father? Is that God's will, that you hate your father, that you hate your mother? What is Jesus saying here? Let's let Matthew clear that up. Matthew chapter 10, 37. He who loves father or mother more than me. Why does Jesus use this strong language here, hate? I'll tell you why, to grab our attention. Because when it comes to the love that we have for God, our love for God should be so superior to the love that we have for our physical family that it should be like a light shining in the darkness. That's the loyalty that God asks of his people. And you notice the language Jesus uses? That is a cross that some of us bear. It's a cross we bear. Because in order to follow God, in order to follow Jesus, sometimes we have to disassociate ourselves from even family, physical family. And that's very difficult, isn't it? It's a cross we bear. But Jesus says, if you can't bear that cross, you're not worthy of me. You've got to make a decision. It's important to us, but I'll tell you what blood is not thicker than. It's not thicker than the blood of Jesus. It may be thicker than water, chemically speaking, but it's, it's not more uniting than the waters of baptism. Because there is a bond that is shared in that that is eternal. My relationship with my physical family will one day cease. It will cease. Now, there's some people obviously in this room that I have blood relation to that are also in the family of God. So there's a relationship that's eternal, but that bond will cease to exist when we die. It'll cease. So what about this family? This isn't the all-inclusive family, by the way. Some of y'all are missing from this picture, but you get the point. How do we view that family? Now let's go back to what I said earlier about how people identify themselves. Some of us identify ourselves as we go to church, some as the church. So how would we describe the people up here? Are these people we go to church with or are they family? And it matters. It matters how we view that. I'll tell you why. Because John writes in 1 John, we're not just using the word brother. It's not just a word we call each other brother and sister to the point where we would die for one another. If you asked me this morning if I would die for Piper or Miles, I wouldn't hesitate. My kids, in a heartbeat, I'd take a bullet. What about the other people in this room that you have no blood relation to? Would you die for them? That's the kind of love that John says we should have for one another. Jesus showed us the love of God and that he laid down his life for his brethren and we ought to do the same. But I'm not going to do that if my relationship is so shallow that all it is is, yeah, I'll go to church with them. No, they're my family. What is family? Acts chapter 2. Do you want to be like the New Testament church? 
Really think about that. Do you want to be like the New Testament church? Which one? Corinth? Not really. <laughs> Ephesus? Eh. What about Philippi? You know, that letter is very positive. If you read it, you might want to be like, who do we want to be like? No, we don't want to do everything that the New Testament church did because the New Testament church is just like the church today. It's people. It's made up of people, right? Who do wrong things, who do bad things at some time. But you know, there's glimpses that we see that are authoritative in Scripture that we know Jesus directed them and guided them to do these things. Do we want to be like them? And I would say, yes, we do. Because one thing we know is what the apostles were doing and practicing in relation to how they worship God and, and what they were doing as, as, a, as a body. We can look at that and we can say, okay, that's what God wants. So Acts chapter 2, this is the first interaction, the first glimpse of the church that we see in Scripture. Acts 2, 44. It says, Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Someone says, well, I won't be like that. That sounds crazy. That sounds like socialism. Understand what was happening here. You had 3,000 people converted on the day of Pentecost. And if you go back and look in the first few verses of Acts 2, there are people who are displaced. They don't live in Jerusalem. They've come down for the Passover. They're there for Pentecost. You've got the, the Medes and Parthians and Elamites and all those other people that are there in Jerusalem. And what are they doing? They want to stay there. But they don't have jobs. They don't have houses. And the family of God was so important that people who did live in Jerusalem said, we're going to sell what we own so you can stay here and be a part of the family. That's powerful. You know what that sounds like? Family. Because families do what they have to to sacrifice, don't they? they? They probably don't know a lot of these people. Not that well. They may have just been people that came and they had Passover with. But they're all one in Jesus Christ. And they're doing what it takes and people are selfless and they're looking out for one another's interests so they can be family. Romans chapter 12 and verse 10. I think that they embodied this principle that we see in Romans chapter 10. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another. Now we're going to do a little bit of word study on this for a moment. I think it'll be helpful. Kindly affectionate. What does that mean, kindly affectionate? Well, if you look up those words, it's a combination of two Greek words, the word philo and the word storgos. And the word philo we're very familiar with. It's brotherly, okay, like brotherly love, philodelphia, Philadelphia, brotherly. Now notice how this, the combination, storgos is a type of love. Now combining these two words, notice how Thayer defines it. He said is the mutual love of parents and children and wives and husbands, loving affection, prone to love, loving tenderly, chiefly of the reciprocal tenderness of parents and children. So if we were going to describe what is philostorgos, what is kindly affection? So the word kind is more like kindred, not being kind to one another, but kindred. We're kin, right? It's unnatural, we would say, for a mother not to love her child or a child not to love her mother. That's unnatural. That's, that's a prone Love, that's what he says. That's how you love each other. Not with this, well, I'm going to love you in action, but hate you with my heart. That's not the love. It's I now view you as family. 
And families love each other. We're prone to love each other. We naturally love each other because of who you are to me and who you are to God. Not because of whether you're perfect or I like your personality or we have the same physical or worldly interests, but I love you because of who you are to God. And because of who you are to God, you're now my family, prone to love. And then he says this, in honor, giving preference to one another. Now, giving preference, that's a, it's translated so many different ways in so many different translations, and people can't decide, what does that mean? Well, let's look at the definition first. To lead the way for others, that is to show deference. Now, what is show deference? That, our, our way of doing that would be to do this. Okay? No, no, no. That's what we often want to do. It's more like this. Okay? Very, very different body language, right? You're welcome for my greatness. Or, okay, it's about honor. And notice, it's connected with the word honor. In honor giving preference to one another. There's not a comma there. There's not a, uh, that's all connected. In honor giving preference to one another. Now, I want to look at the ESV. And notice how it translates this. Outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. Lead the way. Lead the way for others. Think of it that way. Now, do we ever try to outdo one another? I wish people didn't do that, right? But we live in a very competitive world. We're always trying to outdo. We're always trying to win, right? You want to compete with your brothers and sisters? No, no, we don't want to do that. Does it happen? Sure does. But you know what? Here's a a place for healthy competition, Try to be the one that is the most humble and show your brothers and sisters the most honor. Outdo each other. You know what? God is pleased with that. Don't be proud to be humble. (laughs) Just be humble. And do so in such a way that people are having a war of selflessness. Do we ever do that? Yeah, I've seen it. I've experienced it. A lot of times you take somebody out to eat and they'll try to sneak out of there and go buy your meal. Clint Goodman did that to us when they were here a couple weeks ago. We wanted to pay for lunch. We snuck out. And I said, well, okay. Why did he do that? To show off? You don't know Clint. (laughs) Listen, this is the mindset we ought to have toward one another. I want you to feel good. I want you to be understood as I value you. That's what the word honor means. I value you. But too many times it's the other way around. We make each other feel small. As people, sometimes we make each other feel small and low rather than exalting one another. 1 Peter 1.22 says this, Since you purified your souls in obeying the truth of the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Sincere love of the brethren. That word sincere. If you've been here with, uh, for some of our Wednesday night studies, I remember Aaron talking about this. That word sincere means without wax. Without wax. Well, that's weird, isn't it? No, it means it's untainted. There's nothing impure in it. Pure motives. Undissembled is the word. You know what the word dissembled means? It means pretend. You ever seen somebody pretend to love? You shake somebody's hand in their presence and say, Man, how are you doing? It's good to see you. And they walk away and you turn to somebody else and say, I can't stand that guy. That is pretend. In fact, this word, a... Nupokritos is the word a, like a against or the opposite of, and hypocritos, which is hypocrite. Our love should not be hypocritical. It should not be a performance. It should not be pretend. It shouldn't be, well, I have to treat you a certain way because God wants me to. It is real, 
genuine, true love. And I tell you, it has fruit. We will know. We will know if our love is genuine, not just because of the way we act in someone's presence, but how we act when they're not present. How we love them, even when they're not lovable. Because that's family. Acts 4, going to Acts 4, I think this will help us understand the idea of all things with accord. Now the multitude of those who believe were of one heart and one soul. That's incredible. They're of one heart and one soul. Go back later and read the, the second and third verses of the song that Nathan led. You'll get a description of one heart and one soul. The same hope, the same aim, that is the same purpose. It's not just about all believing the same thing. They had one heart and one soul. They were closely knit together. And that's what caused them to sell what they had and ensure that their brothers and sisters were taken care of. Again, I'm not saying that that's God's will for us to sell everything that we have. But if it came to the point where that's what needed to happen, we ought to be willing to do it. We ought to be willing to get rid of our stuff to love one another. If that's what it takes. We ought to be of one heart and one soul to the point where when one member suffers, we suffer. Or when one member's honored, we rejoice. Rather than being envious when somebody's honored, let's be happy. Let's celebrate it. Let's rejoice. When somebody's hurting, let's not cast it off. Let's hurt with them. You know who I hurt with? The people I really know. The ones I really know. I don't mean people that I know who they are. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you, you, you all know that I love Sean Zebach. He's, he's one of my closest friends I've ever had in this world. And uh, I always call him a scumbag. You know why? Because he's always making me cry. And I'm not a crier. If you've been around me very long, you probably hadn't seen me cry. Bro. I'm not a crier. But man, he makes me cry. You know why? Because he cries. But I'll tell you why. Because I don't just know Sean as a person. I know him as a brother. And we've been in situations that were dark days. We were in the trenches together. Going through some very terrible things and sharing, sharing and partaking in some of the things that come along with ministering in the gospel of Christ. And when I, when I see that man cry, I know why. I know why. My wife's not a crier. If she is crying, back off. I'm kidding. I, I didn't see her cry hardly at all when we were dating except for when she was mad. But I'll tell you, if she's crying, it's real. The hurt is real. When we have that closeness with, she, with each other, we know each other's passions. We know each other's difficulties, their fears. I'll tell you, it's not hard to weep with those that weep. And it's not producing fake tears. It's not crocodile tears. It's because of the closeness of the relationship that we have with each other. And when I'm callous to your pain, it's because we don't know each other like God wants us to know each other. God wants us to have a true closeness and accord. Did you notice, you know I skip over words sometimes when I read, with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. This is what the Christians did directly after their conversion, daily. Wouldn't we get sick of each other if we were around each other that much? Why were they together in the temple daily? And why were they in house to house daily? I mean, that seems kind of impossible, first off, because we all got jobs, right? 
We all got jobs. We got busy lives. We got all kinds of things going on. And so I'm not going to stand up here and say, yeah, that's, that's possible. Everybody in here needs to be together every day. But, but, but I want to ask the question, why were they together daily? And why are they in the temple for that matter? What are they doing in the temple? And, and you know what we automatically do? We take our modern day lens and we go, well, I know what they weren't doing. They weren't worshiping God in the temple because they wouldn't have dared done that because the old law has been done away with. Did you know they didn't know the old law had been done away with? And Peter didn't even know that until Acts chapter 10. He still thinks there's certain meats that are unclean for him to eat. They don't got what we got there. They don't understand that. You know what they were doing? Going to the temple at the hour of prayer and worshiping together daily. Daily. They were praising God and having favor with all the people. You know why? Because they were there around all the people. They saw it. They witnessed it. But that's not all they did. They were in each other's homes eating meals. Now, why do they do that? Why spend so much time together? As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. I've got a really nice knife sharpening kit at my house. You know where it's at? In my storage shed. And I'll tell you what else I got at my house. I got some dull knives. I've got the right ingredients to have a sharp knife. But I'll tell you, until I put that knife together with the sharpener, nothing will happen. You understand my point? Iron doesn't sharpen iron until you put it together. You've got to be around and connected with people if you want to experience the sharpening. That's why they were together. Because they had one aim and one purpose and one goal, which was heaven. You want to get to heaven? Be sharpened. Be around other people whose goal and aim it is to get to heaven. You spend your time around people that don't have that ambition, what does it do? It dulls you. It rubs you wrong. It's discouraging. You spend all your time watching Fox News and CNN, it will rub you wrong. Because all of a sudden your hope gets dim, your purpose gets a little bit conflated, and all of a sudden your joy is no longer in Christ, it's in something that's worldly and ungodly. Surround yourself with people who will sharpen you. Because two are better than one. Some of you won't believe this, but I'm an introvert by nature. I am. You can ask my wife. I can be perfectly fine sitting at my office for eight hours a day with no one else around. That's, I'm fine with that. But I don't need that. I do not need that. Because I'll tell you, 2020 was a hard year for me. Because I started figuring out, even though I prefer being introverted, some mindsets, some attitudes... They resurfaced because I was not around God's people. And then when I was around God's people, I was a little bit cantankerous because I forgot how to interact and socialize with people. We need each other. And he's not here, so I'm going to pick on him. He's actually homesick. When I read this passage, I'll tell you who I think of. Caleb Ives. That's who I think of. And maybe you don't, but I do. And I'll tell you why. Number one, that guy is strong. If you've never tried to move a piece of furniture with Caleb Ives, you don't understand how strong that man is because he will make you feel like a, a, a tiny little girl. He is strong. But I'll tell you what else that man is. He is a servant, and he will be there for you anytime you ask. He will drop what he's doing. If it is humanly possible, he will be there. And there's been times he's helped us do some physical projects around the house, but I'll tell you, there's some other times that man's helped me, and I won't tell you about it, but I'll tell you, he bore a heavy burden for me. We need each other. We cannot live this life alone. 
Everybody thinks it's virtuous to stand up and say, I can do this by myself. I'm strong. No matter how strong you are, it's cold. Sometimes you fall and you need somebody to pick you up. And I'll tell you, you can get a lot more done with more than one person. And this one right here is the one that really grabs me the most. The one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. You got an enemy. You got an enemy and he wants to crush you. And I'll tell you, if you try to fight him alone, you will be destroyed. There's a reason why God put us together with this family. It's because we need each other. We need this. Gracious words are like a honeycomb. Sweetness to the soul and health to the body. We a lot of times are focusing on putting good things in our body, right? Good things that nourish us. Good things that make us feel good, that make us strong. I'll tell you something that will make you strong and healthy and feel good is when good things are said and you're hearing. That's health to the body. That's good medicine. Good medicine. But I'll tell you, sometimes that's not what we hear. A perverse man so strife and a whisper separates the best of friends. You know why sometimes people don't want to be part of an extended family? Because people are untrustworthy with their words. And you know what the Bible also says? It says a brother offended is harder to win than a city. This is not the type of thing that God wants for his people. He does not want us to be gossips. And he actually warns us. That one who goes about as a slander reveals secrets, therefore do not associate with a gossip. Don't. Don't be around it. Don't be around that chatter. When we start railing on each other and slandering one another and talking, saying wicked things and running down people's character, that is not for us. And I'll tell you what we do. We destroy the family by doing those things. But when we speak good things about one another, when we say those words, that lift people up and encourage each other, that is good medicine. We have to open our homes. No, I mean it. We have to. <laughs> it's commanded by God. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. We just look at that as an option. You know, it's a qualification for elders, right? Well, <laughs> thank goodness that's not on me. This is written to all Christians. Show hospitality. In fact, Peter repeats it later. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace, or the manifold grace of God. He says, you are a steward of the grace of God. What does that mean, a steward? It means God's given you something to be shared. To be shared. Share the gift that God has given you for what? To what end? Love one another earnestly. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality. You know, one of the unappreciated gifts that God has given us is our home. Our home. Many of us have nice homes, don't we? And why did God bless us with such nice homes? I get it. It's a dangerous world out there. I, I'll tell you, as an evangelist, I'm frustrated about COVID for, for this reason alone. Everybody brought a ring doorbell, and so they don't answer the door anymore. <laughs> they just look at the camera, and they go, I don't know that guy, and look at him. He's redheaded and got her. I don't answer the door. <laughs> this is kind of the, the culture that we've adopted, though, is our home is no longer a place where people come and go. It's a force field for our family. To keep everybody out. Keep all the influence out. And I get it. 
it's a, it's a dirty world. But you know what's sad is sometimes we build a force field around our family with God's people. He said, well, I don't know if you've met God's people, but some of them are challenging, and I don't really want them around my family. Okay, I get that. But do we ever make exceptions to that in other areas? Let me ask you, do we still have that same standard when it comes to entertainment? We're really worried about God's people being a terrible influence on our kids and on our family, but we'll let them go to the movies and watch whatever PG-13 or rated R movie is showing with all kinds of violence and sexual filth and everything else. We're really worried that that's what they're going to get with God's people. So why move, why move the standard? What are we really worried about? People are difficult, right? People are difficult. So take a risk. Be guarded, but take a risk. Open your home. Let God's people in. You know why? Because you need God's people. My kids need God's people. There's a reason why I forced my kids to go all over the place with me and meet a lot of people. It's not just because I love my kids. I do. I want them with me. But I want them to meet good, godly people that can be a good, godly influence. Because they're not going to get that all the time. Honor the Lord with your wealth. And with the first fruits of all your produce. I know this verse has been contaminated for preachers to stand up and beg for your money. That's not what I'm saying. It's not about that. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. You know what God's saying? I give you those things for my glory. God deserves to be honored with the blessings that we have. You know what one of the fruits that we have is? Our children, our children. You know, we don't, we don't see what Israel saw. We don't see children being sacrificed to Malek, that kind of thing happening. But I'll tell you, kids are sacrificed to all kinds of things. They're just handed over to the world to be molded and to be shaped. Why not give them to God? He owns them. God didn't give us our kids for our pleasure, to just do with them what we like. And train them how we like and make them love the things that we like. They're a heritage from God. They're something God's entrusted us with. He's not just given us a child that looks like us and that we love. He's given us a soul to be molded, to be shaped. There's nothing greater you can do for your children than teach them to love the kingdom of God. And that means you teach them to love God's people. To love God's people. Seek first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. The fullness of the blessings of God are in the family of God. They're in the, they're in the family of God. You know what? Talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. I can, I can tell my family that I love God all day long. But I'll tell you what. They're going to do what I do. And believe what I do. Not believe what I say. So we got to produce some fruit. Do we love God's family? Do you care about the people in this room and about their soul? Do you care whether or not these people go to heaven? Do you care whether or not they're spiritually well or sick? Let's show one another. Let's be a family. Let's love each other like a family. Let's open up our homes. Let's take our time to spend time. I don't have time. We have time. We won't make time. Let's make time. Let's make it a priority to love one another like God wants us to, not just as people who all have a common belief, but people who are all headed toward the same place, 
If we can't get along now, how do we expect to spend eternity with each other? We're a family. And if you're not part of God's family, become his child today. We have things prepared. You can be united with Jesus Christ today. And God will identify you as his child. And you'll become a joint heir with Jesus Christ, an heir of eternal life. Would you like that? Listen, if you're part of God's family and you're struggling, we are not your judge. We are not your judge. We are your family. And if you need help today, let us help you. We will take that need before God and help you in whatever way we can in the future. We ask you to come have a seat as we stand and we sing.